Hey everyone, we have a short but important episode of Podcast 19 for you this week. We are still awaiting the arrival of our new producer. She's starting soon and I am so excited to introduce you to her. But in the meantime, some pretty big COVID news dropped. 538's senior science writer Maggie Kurth joined me to talk about it. And just a note, there is one curse word towards the end of the show. So Maggie, this week the U.S. announced that it would not be joining the COVID-19 Vaccines Global Access Facility, or COVAX, as an effort co-led by the World Health Organization to develop and equitably distribute a corona vaccine to people around the world. So Maggie, what is the United States' rationale for not participating in this plan? So this basically stems from a stance against the World Health Organization that President Trump has sort of had the entirety of COVID. As you'll probably remember, he has put us on the track to pull out of the World Health Organization. And that has impacts on things like this global access facility, which is designed to, you know, basically help less wealthy countries actually have access to vaccines. Right now, what's sort of going on is that a lot of rich countries like the U.S. are signing these deals, partnerships with pharmaceutical companies, and we're going to have access to these vaccines first. And that could put a situation in play where you have doctors, frontline workers in less developed nations still waiting on treatment, waiting on a way to prevent the spread of coronavirus, while we have every Joe Schmo in the U.S. who's not really high risk vaccinated already. So the World Health Organization is trying to avoid that kind of scenario, but now the U.S. has said that we're not going to participate in that. Can you remind me and our audience what the original reason um, was that Trump wanted to withdraw from the World Health Organization? Yeah, so there's several things sort of happening here. Um, And it's not that these, what's interesting about this to me anyway, is that it's not that these are illegitimate concerns, right? Back during the beginning of COVID, the World Health Organization was sort of putting out information that it was getting from the Chinese government that turned out to not really be accurate. Like they were getting the runaround, they were getting highly censored data. And so they were saying things that like, well, 1% of cases are asymptomatic, when privately Chinese doctors were already saying that it was upwards of 50%. So they were putting out this information that turned out to be inaccurate because they were relying exclusively on what the Chinese government was saying and not what other people on the ground were saying. You know, the WHO is not a perfect agency. They've got this decentralized management system that means their main office in Geneva doesn't have a lot of control over what's happening in all of these regional branches. And that has made it really easy over the years for the regional branches to become these pawns of local politics. And that's probably what is happening when you look at things like, you know, accepting Chinese government numbers as true, even when that's not what the doctors were saying on the ground. This also is not the first time that a president has pushed back against the World Health Organization. The Obama administration actually kind of bypassed them during the Ebola crisis a few years ago and formed this temporary coalition with other nations and NGOs directly because they didn't really think that the response that the WHO had was adequate. If we if we don't participate in this um, initiative, does it also have an impact on our ability to actually secure doses of an internationally produced vaccine? 
I mean, looking at the New York Times coronavirus uh, vaccine tracker, there are nine vaccines in phase three clinical trials, and those are being made all over the world in places like China, the UK, Australia. And then there are other vaccines that are in phase two trials in places like India and Japan. So if the U.S. isn't first to create a vaccine, would not participating in this initiative somehow have an impact on our ability to secure doses? So I think one of the things that's interesting about this is that it's really like the culmination of three things we've been talking about the entirety of COVID, which has been, you know, as I said, Trump's um, problems with the World Health Organization, uh, the global supply chain and how that can get disrupted during a pandemic, and also this idea of vaccine nationalism. There have been other situations in the past, like during swine flu, where wealthy countries hoarded their access to vaccines and made it difficult for less wealthy nations to get them. And that's a bigger problem now because we've never had a pandemic shut down the global economy in the same way. And the global economy is in fact global. You know, we are talking about parts of these vaccines being made all over the world. It's not just something that happens in one place and that we can really tightly control. So I think one example that really stands out to me is that the Serum Institute of India is the world's largest producer of vaccine doses. And their chief executive has already said that, well, our doses go to Indians first. And so if we are not participating in a multinational agreement on these things, well, then we start to run into every nation, you know, taking their every nation for themselves stance. That has the potential to be pretty complicated. Um, Another thing that sort of came up that I thought was interesting this summer is that the AstraZeneca vaccine that's being developed by the University of Oxford, there's a bunch of like wheeling and dealing and outbidding that's going on around that. So that company had originally promised the UK the first 30 million doses of the vaccine because they had put $79 million into research investment. But then we came along and dropped $1.2 billion later in the summer. And now we're set up to get 300 million doses, possibly as early as November. You know, we start to get into like some political conflicts around who has, you know, who the highest bidder is. And that could really not necessarily play out in our favor. It could not play out in our favor both in direct ways, like other nations not agreeing to work with us on things like where the manufacturing is happening and like whether they're sending the vaccines, the parts of the vaccine to where they need to go. And it could also backfire in the sense that You know, if we take an America first approach and everything works out as far as we can tell hunky dory and we have all the Americans vaccinated, but all these other countries where we get our stuff from aren't vaccinated and all of these other countries where we get tourists from aren't vaccinated, well, that still affects our economy and that still hampers our ability to actually recover from this. So it's not really just a one country at a time situation, but it seems like we and several other countries, it's not just us, are kind of approaching this as though it is. Right. So it's less that in not joining COVAX, we're hurting our own ability to secure doses. It's more that we're not thinking about public health as a global problem. 
Exactly. The virus could still disrupt trade and tourism and travel, even if we are taking care of our own here. Right. And and we're able to take care of our own here, even without an initiative like COVAX, because early on in the pandemic, we already threw a bunch of money around to a lot of these uh, private uh, biotech companies. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've invested in a bunch of different things. And the way that the World Health Organization is sort of pitching, um, the way that they're pitching COVAX is that it's an insurance program in some ways. Right. So like most likely one of these things that we've tossed money at already will pan out. We, we don't know when, but most likely one of them will. But COVAX is like backup insurance just in case they don't, because you'd really hate to be the person left holding the ball without access to a vaccine. Does COVAX need the U.S. and other countries that have been practicing this sort of vaccine nationalism like Russia and India in order to actually work? To a certain extent, I don't know about India and Russia, but they do need us. Um, we have a lot of political pull with large wealthy countries. We have a lot of money. The organization that is kind of the overarching umbrella head of this COVAX thing is a vaccine program that we are the primary funders of. So, you know, this is one of the things where you get into these complications about the idea of pulling out of the World Health Organization. It's not just like one thing that we stop showing up for. It's a bunch of programs and a bunch of stuff that we fund heavily and that, you know, at various times the administration has talked about liking. So can you pull out of one thing and not pull out of another? Well, that is remains to be seen. Has the U.S. said anything about how they would help distribute vaccines globally to to places that um, are less developed and and, um, can't secure these contracts for themselves? I mean, outside of COVAX, has the U.S. made any promises to the developing world for securing vaccines for them? Not that I have seen. I I don't know if you've seen anything. Um, I I have not been able to find anything. There was another program that the EU and the Gates Foundation Uh, and the Wellcome Trust put together this summer with like an $8 billion initiative that was supposed to develop and distribute all sorts of COVID-related treatments and tools. And the U.S. chose not to participate in that either. Well, Maggie, thank you so much for speaking with me right now. This feels like actually one of the the biggest uh, emerging stories um, to come out of the pandemic in the last month or so. So I really appreciate all of your research and, and sharing your knowledge with me. It does feel like one of the biggest stories to come out of the pandemic, right? Like, this is, like, giant. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. This is a huge, huge fucking deal. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our executive producer and the editor of this week's show is Chadwick Matlin. I'm pretty sure no one will be happier than Chad for our new producer to join the team.